Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Here's one of the most misunderstood and misused words in the English language, psychedelic. The word first came into use in 1956 when a psychiatrist named Humphrey Osmond was studying a new class of pharmaceuticals that had potential when it came to treating certain mental disorders. A chemical known as lysergic acid dithalidomide, LSD for short, had been extracted by a Swiss scientist named Albert Hoffman from a fungus called ergot. And from 1943 on, medical professionals tried to figure out what it could be used for. It was even marketed commercially for a while under the brand named Delicid. Then the CIA got involved, thinking that LSD could be used for things like interrogation, chemical warfare, and mind control, but that's a whole other story. Because the chemical resulted in people entering an altered state of perception, some started using it recreationally. Artists discovered its properties and started taking acid trips looking for inspiration and new creative roads. Then other psychedelics went mainstream, including mescaline, which comes from the peyote plant, and psilocybin, which you can get from certain mushrooms. And this happened just before all these drugs were made illegal. Meanwhile, the word psychedelic, which means soul-revealing in Greek, became an adjective. It was used to describe anything that could be mind-expanding, anything that alters the way we perceive reality, anything that might take us on a mental trip. Naturally, this quickly extended to music, and psych became a thing in the 1960s. That sound, that vibe, that attitude that began 50-plus years ago continues today with alt-rock. This is a quick history of psych in the world of alternative music. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. That's Kula Shaker from 1996 with a song called Tatva, which was a substantial hit on alt-rock radio back in the late 90s. And the singer there is Crispin Mills. He's the son of Haley Mills, who starred in a bunch of Disney films back in the 1960s. Crispin is very heavy into the whole psych thing to the point where he has a spiritual name, Krishna Kanta Das. But what is this whole psych thing? That's what we're going to try to define on this episode. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. And let's start by going back to that word psychedelic and the term psychedelic music. What exactly are we talking about? Well, in the beginning, this was a rock subgenre that arose out of the drug culture of the 1960s, specifically from people who were into drugs like LSD, magic mushrooms, mescaline, and so on. These drugs create visual and auditory hallucinations, which can also take the form of altered states of consciousness. Mind expanding is another phrase that's thrown around. Psychedelic music was a way of expressing that new sense of consciousness, enhancing a trip, and otherwise trying to convey a new way of looking at music now that the mind had been freed from reality and ego. There is no one psychedelic sound, there's no one style, but you know it when you hear it. What counts is the effect. All psych music has a number of things in common. First of all, exotic instruments are often used, like the Indian sitar and tabla, in conjunction with a variety of keyboards and samples and sound effects. Second, dreamy jams are encouraged. 
Third, songs are often disjointed with time signature changes. Fourth, the drone, something that we'll get into a little bit later on. And finally, surreal lyrics that take the form of, um, well, something that's just hard to interpret. The first psych music came out in the early and middle 60s. Rock and pop artists took up the drug culture that had lived in the jazz and folk world for years. And the biggest early proponent of this new mind-expanding music were the Beatles. And by 1966, they were releasing songs like this. The Beatles with Tomorrow Never Knows from their 1966 album Revolver. That track has everything psychedelic music would need to get started. Drug references, an unusual rhythm track, a drone from the sitar, backwards tape, sound effects, and samples. This first version of Psych was really popular for a while. Groups like the Beach Boys, especially with their 1966 album Pet Sounds, brought Psych to a wider audience. The Jefferson Airplane dabbled in Psych with songs like White Rabbit. The 13th Floor Elevators released an album entitled The Psychedelic Sounds of the 13th Floor Elevators. Pink Floyd started as a psych band. This is called Interstellar Overdrive from 1967. And although they were ignored by just about everyone at the time, the Velvet Underground became part of Andy Warhol's crew playing happenings for hangers-on and freaky people. And there were, yes, plenty of drugs and plenty of psychedelic lighting effects at these events. But by the end of the 1960s, psych music went into something of a decline. LSD, which was still legal at the beginning of the scene, was now illegal. There was a backlash against hippies. Suspicion of the counterculture went into overdrive following the Manson family murders. And then there were all the stories of acid casualties and famous musicians who went nuts, allegedly because of their drug use. Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. But psychedelic music didn't go away entirely. Its influences could still be found in genres like the English prog rock of the early 70s and a form of often hypnotic German music called krautrock. And if you listen to a lot of hard rock and metal bands of the 70s, you know, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, you could certainly tell that psych had happened. And then along came punk, or more specifically post-punk, the years after the rise of the Sex Pistols and the Ramones and the Clash and so on. Some groups tried to resurrect the mind expansion approach with music, and a few did very well. And this has been called neo-psychedelic rock. 
Some see it as a subset of punk, while others consider it to be part of the whole new wave movement. Others look at it as a whole new branch of rock music. Punk brought out a willingness to tap into unusual sounds, especially if they were guaranteed to annoy elements of the mainstream. Much of the 60s psych had been discredited by the establishment, so that was a great place for punks to start. Start with stuff that's annoying. Some groups followed the Beatles' example. Others took up the mantle of Pink Floyd. Keyboards and synthesizers played a role, but so did jangly guitars. You know, the kind that George Harrison seemed to like. Long experimental jams were good. And then there were the mandatory allusions to drugs. And Britain was the place to be for neo-psych. One of the first bands of this sort was called The Soft Boys, featuring guitarist Robin Hitchcock. In 1979, they released an album called A Can of Bees, and it featured songs like this. Soft boys. Coarse, hard boys, groove, and wide boys, a mess of it. But them soft boys wind up with a Dr. Messerschmitt. That's the Soft Boys from 1979, mining some sounds and styles from 60s psych. That's called Give It to the Soft Boys. Another important early British neo-psych band was the Teardrop Explodes, featuring singer Julian Cope. In 1980, they released a very good album entitled Kilimanjaro. Seven singles were taken from this record. Not bad, considering that there were only 12 tracks. This is one of them. It's the Teardrop Explodes and Sleeping Gas. Julian Cope and the Teardrop Explodes with Sleeping Gas from 1980. The final band in our holy trinity of British neo-psych pioneers from the late 70s and early 80s is Echo and the Bunnymen. They were all formed in Liverpool in 1978 and were led by singer Ian McCullough and guitarist Will Sargent. They released a string of fantastic records starting in 1980, some of which resulted in singles that made the top 10 in the UK. They also got a pretty massive break when John Hughes included them on the soundtrack for the film Pretty in Pink. And that song was Bring On The Dancing Horses. Echo and the Bunnymen with Bring On The Dancing Horses, an example of mid-80s British neo-psychedelic music. Before we get back into this history of psych music in the world of alt-rock, we need to study a little more neuroscience. Experimentation with mind-expanding drugs goes back to caveman days and has lived on through various cultures thanks to their medicine men and shamans. Serious scientific inquiry began in the 1940s and continued through until the 1960s when drugs like LSD were declared illegal. And because acid is what's known as a Schedule One drug in the U.S., there is no way anyone can carry out formal research without having to go through an impossible series of regulatory hoops. But that hasn't stopped people from doing informal research. There have been groups of rogue psychiatrists who have tried these sorts of drugs on patients with various mental illnesses. You may have heard about how some Silicon Valley types have been microdosing to break down walls within their minds. They claim that the right amounts of drugs, like LSD, help with things like mood and clarity, productivity, and creativity. 
and they might be 100% correct. Over the last few years, a number of books have been written on the subject that indicate that hallucinogenic drugs may have all kinds of unrealized, genuine therapeutic effects and have the potential of being turned into extremely effective treatments for conditions that have defied all other approaches. Depression, for example. I bring this all up again because of the number of musicians who insist that certain psychotropic substances help them on a number of levels. Now, this isn't medical advice, of course, but it's important to establish this connection between these drugs and music, including all the neo-psychedelic stuff that we're talking about here. As the 80s progressed, more alt-rock groups adopted the psych approach. That included Susie and the Banshees. And yeah, they're most often lumped in with goths. But after guitarist John McGill joined up in 1980, their sound turned trippy. Take, for example, this 1983 cover of the Beatles' Dear Prudence. That song comes right in the middle of the Beatles' psychedelic music phase, inspired by equal parts their time in India with Maharashi Mahesh Yogi and their smoking pot and taking acid. Again, the notion of mind expansion is encapsulated with the swirly guitar. And John has gone down in history as being one of alt-rock's more interesting and influential guitarists. Around the same time Susie and the Banshees were channeling the psychedelic end of the Beatles, a band called Spaceman 3 was getting together to take drugs and make music. Spaceman 3 was rightly categorized as a drug band because everybody in the group was very chatty about their regular and enthusiastic recreational use. Their early demos were issued under the title Taking Drugs to Make Music to Take Drugs to, which was pretty much their mission statement. The group had a very solid run on the UK indie charts through the latter part of the 80s, promoting what they called minimalist psychedelia. One or two chords would do, and in many cases, the concept of the drone was very important in setting the psychic scene. Here's a track from 1988 entitled Revolution. You'll see what I mean about the drone. Spaceman 3 and Revolution, and that's a really good example of late 80s British psych. The group would later cleave in two, with co-frontman Jason Pierce moving on to form Spiritualized, which carried on these traditions in the late 90s and into the 2000s. Psych took a slightly different form in North America. Think about Prince during his Purple Rain phase. He employed a lot of psych-like principles and sounds in songs like When Doves Cry and Let's Go Crazy. And then, out in Los Angeles, there was a scene dubbed the Paisley Underground. This was a sound dominated by jangly guitars, reminiscent of the kind of music played by groups like the Birds and the Hollies and post-Beatles George Harrison. And if he had a 12-string Rickenbacker guitar, all the better. In some ways, this was a merger of a certain strain of classic rock, the peace and love sort, plus the influence of The Doors and Creedence Clearwater Revival, and post-punk alternative rock. A group that came out of this scene, the Paisley Underground, was the Bangles. Yes, them. They began as a mamas and papas influenced pop psych post punk band who released singles like this. Take 
The Bangles in their Paisley Underground pop psych phase, 1984, that's called Hero Takes a Fall. This jangly, poppy guitar approach was wildly influential, encompassing groups like R.E.M. I mean, think about how they sounded for their first half dozen records, and even Tom Petty. Again, it's all in the guitar sound. Now, though, we must snap back to the UK for another derivative rooted in psych. Back with that part of the story next. This is our look at modern psychedelic music, or neo-psychedelic music, as it's often called. Remember that one of the key characteristics of this music is to create a soundscape that, uh, well, allows you to turn off your mind and float downstream. This was something the British shoegaze bands of the late 80s and early 90s were very much into. Floaty, fuzzy, drony music that often felt like a warm bath with its attempts to overload the senses, often through sheer volume. My Bloody Valentine was a leader in this area and inspired a ton of followers like Chapter House and Ride and Lush. But if we're going to do this right, we need to sample some of this. Let's go with a track from My Bloody Valentine's Loveless album from 1991. This is called Soon. I think you'll see what I mean. That's My Bloody Valentine, 1991. Let's move down to the 90s. This is where we encounter post-shoegaze bands, some of whom were labeled space rock. This was yet another psych derivative. Lots of reverb, even more distorted guitars, layers of them, and drumming that feels rather relaxed. You can call it cosmic if you want. And it's kind of like an update on what Pink Floyd was about in the late 1960s. For an example of that, we can go back to the first album from The Verve, when they were still known as The Verve before all that legal unpleasantness, Their 1993 debut album was called A Storm in Heaven. Listen to this. It's called Slide Away. The Verve from 1993 with an example of the space rock branch of modern psych music. By the time we get to the 2000s, neo-psychedelia had taken on all kinds of new dimensions. It wasn't so much about a specific sound as it was about a certain type of effect achieved with trippy, jangly, or even heavily distorted guitars. Many of the practitioners are, um, shall we say, rather eccentric. Revivals come and go, and everybody puts their own spin on it. The Flaming Lips have been called psychedelic, understandable given their predilection for experimentation and weirdness. Primal Scream, with their druggy ambitions, made dancey psychedelia. There's a label out of Colorado called Elephant Six that specialized in various flavors of psych. And we can also throw out names like Super Furry Animals, The Black Angels, Animal Collective, and Mercury Rev. And you could even make an argument that some Arctic Monkey songs are neo-psych-influenced. Same thing with Oasis, especially with songs like Do You Know What I Mean? Think about all those layers of guitars and the droney background to the whole thing. And then we have this variation from Tame Impala, which is a vehicle for Kevin Parker. He's from Perth on the west coast of Australia and has had international alt-rock hits like this from his 2012 album Lonerism. This is called Elephant.
modern psych from Australia's Tame Impala. And that was a brief overview of psychedelic and neo-psych and some of the associated sounds like space rock, shoegaze, paisley underground, and jangle pop. This whole thing is very, very deep. It's a rabbit hole that goes on forever because it branches off in a million different directions. But if you are looking for a guitar-based sound that can transport you into another headspace, even without the use of any chemicals, this might be the thing for you. If you want to send me any email about anything related to this program, or if you just want to be friendly and reach out, use alan at alancross.ca, and I will get back to you. There's my website, which is a journalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every single day. You should also get the newsletter, which helps you keep up to date with what's happening in music. And I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. And don't forget the podcast versions of this show. They're all free, of course. And you can find dozens and dozens of them at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your on-demand audio. Rate, review, and remember to subscribe. We're posting new episodes every week. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.